questions are open. Our microphone people are standing by. Naomi. I guess this is less of a theological question, um, but <laughs> I was always wondering, um, what, what do angels look like? Are they like people or not? <laughs> okay. That's, that's, because there's so many no, like, is, passages that s seem like, it sounds like, oh, they look like men, just as we read today. Yeah. Um, but other times I've heard that they don't look anything like humans at all. And right. it sounds like we're made in the image of God, but right. no, angels, if angels don't have the same not, benefits as us, why would they right. be made in the image of God? Right. No, and the author of Hebrews says it's not for angels that he sends an intercessor and a substitute. So there is no savior for angels. One of the things that's difficult with angels is, for all I know, each and every one looks different because they're not a class or phylum. There's no descent. Angels don't marry or are given in marriage. So each angel who exists was created spontaneously by God. And so it's entirely possible that each and every angel, given the purpose and function God has for them, looks entirely different. We're so used to classing things because they come from descent is similar characteristics. So we've got some pictures of seraphs and seraphim. The em is just the plural Hebrew ending. So seraph and seraphim um, with three sets of wings. We see the angels in Ezekiel who have the four faces. And apparently angels can at will take on the appearance of men and look like men, be mistaken for men. Um, and so, I, I mean, we could go into each passage, but short of doing that, I don't know. Here's the one thing. They don't look cute and cuddly. Do you know what the number one thing angels say when they're seen by men? Don't be afraid. And people just fall on their faces as if dead. So they don't look like a cute little baby with wings in a boat. That's not what they look like. Um, no, the apostle, no, twice, not once, but twice in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John, who has just previously seen the resurrected and glorified Lord, starts to worship an angel. That's how mighty, terrifying, and awesome they are. And the angel's like, stop that, stop that. <laughs> like, no, no. Um, so that just gives us some idea of their power. And one angel took out Sennacherib's army. One angel. One angel took out the firstborn in Egypt. I mean, these are powerful beings um, and terrifying when seen in their power. So, beyond doing a case-by-case -case study, that's, okay. Next is Candy, then Lee. You can just pass the mic, oh, Candy. Um, I just had a question when you were talking about um, the disciples' eyes or them not yeah. being able to understand. Like, I was just thinking, and I don't know, wrongly, about they didn't understand yet because it wasn't their time to understand. It was more as I was thinking, not that they were not wanting to, but I don't know. No, I, I, I'll do the shorthand just because I spent an entire, it took 50 minutes to try to walk through this, but back in chapter 8 on, on the purpose of the parables, the phrase seeing that they may not see and hearing may not hear is a link to Isaiah 6, which in turn links to this theme. Whenever you see the language of spiritual sensory deprivation, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, but we're not talking about real sight and real ears, their hearts have become dull. That's the language associated with idolatry because again and again and again, you'll become like what you behold. So in Isaiah, the idols have mouths and don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. And so the people who worship them become like them. And so Jesus in, in blinding people is not being capricious. Well, you're going to get to understand and you're not. Rather, for some people, because of their idolatry, because of their hardness of heart, the, the heat can melt or heat can harden. 
And that's kind of what Jesus is doing. So that theme has been set up in eight. And so I'm looking for some sort of culpability, some sort of cause for why the disciples don't see. Because otherwise what you end up with is Jesus and the Father being at cross purposes. Jesus is trying to get them to understand and the Father's blinding them. Which I'd be a little uncomfortable with. So Jesus is trying to get them to understand and the Father blinds them or he hides it from them. But we've just been given previously with the children at least some level of them not getting this, them not being on board and embracing Jesus' upside-down ethic of glory and honor. And so my assumption then is that Luke's given us some level of explanation for why it might be appropriate for them to be blinded in that way. That, that was my math. I mean, you, could, you can disagree, but that was how I tried to work through it because I'm trying to avoid Jesus trying to accomplish X and the Father blocking X. Um, because he really is emphatic on this point. Like, seriously, guys, let it sink into your heads. Get it. And then it's hidden. But we're also told they're responsible. They didn't understand. They didn't. So that's my best synthesis. But admittedly, it's, I've got to piece it together. So, um, Lee. This is entirely non-biblical and stupid, but I'll say it anyway because, hey, that's me. But when we <laughs> talk about angels, whenever I tell kids about angels, like in the story of you know, the Christmas story or whatever. So you probably don't want me to teach Sunday school. But I do say it's like aliens because, you know, that's what it's like, <laughs> aliens. And that's why they're scared. So there you go. Well, the basic meaning of alien is foreign or a stranger, right? So the, they are non-terrestrial and they are very strange. Yeah. Um, Jim and then somebody, in the, oh, 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 go. You're next. You're next. Okay, going back to angels, why <laughs> then... Why then, when done, Naomi? Yeah. Sorry. Why then, when someone passes, the family will say, "Well, good, you gained a guardian angel to watch over you." The short answer would be superstition. There's this notion that people become angels is really, I think, just a, a bastardization of the Christian faith as it takes on cultural shallow levels. Um, you hear it all the time. Oh, they took they, another angel got their wings. I mean, that's from its wonderful life, not from the Bible. Um, no, no, but it is common and pervasive, and you hear it all the time. And uh, now there is some evidence that, this, that the, the the dead saints in heaven are aware of what's going on on earth. So the notion of someone watching, looking down and watching, is at least conceptually possible. Because in, in Revelation, you've got the saints under the throne. How much longer, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? They're aware that God has not yet avenged their blood. So they're aware of something. Um, and Moses and Elijah come down and talk with Jesus. They're aware of some of the goings on on earth. So I don't know to what level um, dead saints are aware of what's on earth. But at least those passages open up the concept of some knowledge of what's going on on earth. But yeah, the whole, this whole notion with angels and, and the Christian culture is much more just... I think, superstition or development or folklore than anything ever coming out of the Bible. Um, but it is pervasive. I mean, you do hear it all over the place. <laughs> Heaven just gained another... What? Oh, sorry. Well, it, that, we'll leave that one off anyway because... Oh, what'd you say? Someone just, no, no microphone. Okay, we need the mic. That, Carol Hardy's got the microphone. Okay. Okay, we're still on the, on the angel theme here. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> I was hoping we'd be on it. <laughs> okay. Well, 
This is a... You guys scratch for the itch. Go. This is a great verse, uh, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Right. Probably referring to, uh, Abraham. to Abraham and, yeah. and, and Sarah, who the angels, yeah. you know, and the, the angels, they went right into Sodom with Lot, and obviously they appeared as... As people, but yeah. that, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That you you could be entertaining a something, stranger who's an angel. Something know? similar happened with uh, Samson's parents, I think. Um, they had the guy come and tell them, and they offered him food, and they made a sacrifice instead, and he ascended up into heaven on the smoke, and they said, woe unto us, for we've seen God. Um, yeah, so probably Abraham is the most likely antecedent, but there's a, even a couple others. But yeah, angels may walk among us. We don't know. Indeed. Anyone got any more questions on angels? <laughs> oh, oh, Jamie. Do you feel that Michael Landon played an accurate portrayal <laughs> of an angel? <laughs> okay, we have officially closed the door on angels now. Uh, okay. Um, Kevin. No, it's not about angels. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> I've actually been wanting to ask this several weeks and just didn't do it. Um, can you explain, from your understanding of the Bible, how our relationships will be in heaven mm. based on, say, a husband and wife on earth yeah. when we go to be in heaven yeah. That seems, from my lack of understanding of that, that seems un, uneasy to feel like I'm not going to have that same. Right. Okay, so that's a, that's a great question. Here's the short answer, and then I'll try to give an analogy C.S. Lewis made that's helpful. In heaven, I will not be married to my wife. Marriage is an establishment for this epoch, this time. In heaven, I will love my wife more fully and closely than I do now. Um, if that seems anticlimactic, it's only because we don't comprehend what's going on. M marriage, the relationship between a man and a woman, is a picture of the consummation of Christ in the church. So when the, the, the fullness has come, when the consummation comes, the, the shadow is done away with. So C.S. Lewis tells a story, um, and he was, what book was it in? Was it The Problem of Pain, or was it, anyway. Um, one of the things that he actually even draws out in the Narnia stories and in um, The Great Divorce is this notion that we tend to think, when you take the lines away, when you say what won't be in heaven, it gets more and more vacuous, which is where you end up with pictures of people sitting on clouds with a harp in their hand, going kumbaya. And, and Lewis's point is that it's, it's so much the reverse. This is the shadow. This is the vaporous land. And the reality is the new heavens and the new earth. And so he, he imagines a woman being thrown into a tower without any windows, pregnant. And she gives birth to her son, and she raises him in the tower. And she lives in the hopes that one day he'll be led outside to see the world. And all he knows is the tower. And so one of the things she has is a set of, set of um, crayons, and not crayons, set of pencil and paper. And she, she draws him pictures of things. This is a tree. This is a cloud. This is a house. This is a cat. 
Imagine the young man's surprise and chagrin when one day he learns that there are no lines around things in the outside world. And in his mind, the tree just disappeared. The tree is defined by this line that goes around, right? Oh, no, there's no lines like that in the outside world. Yet if he were ever to get outside of the tower, he'd realize that the real tree is so much more real and full and three-dimensional and it than this drawing. But he's told what isn't there. And so we're told, okay, there won't be death. There won't be dying. There won't be disease. Everyone's going to be happy. And we just sort of, okay, then I guess we're just going to sit around in a sauna and, you know, go to, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? And, and yet the pictures we get, there's work to be done. There's trees. Um, with the leaves are distributed to the nation. I mean, there's, there's the activity going on. God just hasn't revealed a ton of what that activity will be. So you will love um, Genema fully, more fully, more perfect, more holy than you do now. You will be closer and have a greater intimacy than you do now. You just won't be married. I think both of those are true. And you won't have any jealousy or sense of loss. You know what I mean? Because there'll be no other people to be suspicious of. There'll be no temptation to fear that other people are also close and, uh, and loving to your wife and vice versa because it'll be a perfect, holy, righteous love. And We'll, have this, we'll understand it when we see it, but that's, that's the reality. I remember, I remember uh, when I got, when I was, after I got married to my wife, I told her, is she here? Yes. Remember when you tried to correct me? I said, I'm going to love you forever. She said, no, we won't be married in heaven. I said, but I'll still love you and better in heaven. <laughs> Zinga. Okay. Jim. Okay. I was going to say something in regards to, there, there's a point in Revelation where, um, this is uh, out of chapter 6, it says, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne. I think it's some, it sounds to me like at some point in Revelation that that veil is removed between heaven and earth. Yeah. Unfortunately, my theory didn't work out too well because the souls under the altar is the previous seal. <laughs> so from a... Now what's interesting, no, but that's a fascinating passage because you meet so many people who just say, if I could only just sit down and have a cup of tea with God, if I could just talk to him, if he could just prove his existence. Revelation 6 makes it clear there's going to come a time where God's going to stick his head out from behind the curtain and say, hi. And the people don't say, oh, at last we know. There you are. Oh, they, they hate what they see, and they would rather be buried alive in tunnels than face and deal with God. Um, which I think Romans, Romans, Romans 1 disputes that we're anyway. We're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We're looking for God like thieves are looking for the police. Um, I also had a question oh. in, in regards to things being hidden from us. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I was thinking about that, it seems to me, and I could be way off base, that perhaps the book of Revelation is more pertinent, better understood today than it was two, three, four hundred years ago. And I might be completely off base about that. Well, until we know the final answer of how it plays out, we won't be able to really critically answer that question. It could be. I mean, certainly as history unfolds, you can certainly cross off options, right? People are, oh, this is that. 
no, it wasn't. Oh, no, this, this happening over here is this. No, it's not. So we can certainly cross some possibilities off our list. Um, and we get the basic scheme of how it plays out, but the specific players, what nations, how it's going to come to a climax, man, we, we don't know. But in Jesus' day, yes. his verbiage plainly spelled things out. And yet, yeah. even his disciples did not see those things. Could it be in these last days or whatever, this epoch, that um, it's only in God's timing that certain portions of truth become more pertinent? Possibly, except the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that has a blessing, not just on hearing, but understanding. So there seems to be from its inception when John's ink dried and he sent off the letter to the seven churches, the seven churches would have read chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And then I think at the end of the book, there's a blessing on those who understand. Let me check. I could be wrong. Um, okay. Um... Nope. Okay. So, bless it. No, no. It, it, certainly, the Holy Spirit illumines truth, right? And, and in my own life, um, and, I, and I'll meet people wrestling with theological topics, and I really want to understand this. It may be the case that God's got something in front of you to deal with first, and he's not going to give you understanding to deal with the things in front of you, you know? Um, like, I've met people wrapped up in, in the rapture, tribulation charts. Like, dude, go love your wife. <laughs> Stop trying to figure out the seventh seal and go love your wife. Maybe that's why God's frustrating your attempts. You know what I mean? No, no deal with this. <laughs> Let me show you this, you know? So that certainly that's the case. And the Holy Spirit, at least in, in my life, will show me something, point something out to me, and then wait till I start to put it into practice, then show me the next thing, whatever that might be. Um, so certainly, it's not that um, we understand everything at all times, but we are told to study, we're promised the Spirit's going to give us understanding. In, in 1 Corinthians 2.12, the Spirit's given to us that we might understand the things given to us by God. So I would not want to approach the book of Revelation thinking, well, maybe we can't understand it, because what was the point for the church for the last 2,000 years Although it may be the case, it's going to be easier to understand as history unfolds. It's going to be less difficult to get. And like I said before, we can certainly cross off options. You know, um, I'm pretty sure the people in Jesus' day would have thought Nero was the Antichrist, um, and apparently not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so we can certainly cross off um, false options. But I, I, I wouldn't want to think, well, that's not understandable, because, yeah. The, then you've got all scriptures profitable for reading, for proof, for correction, and training, and righteousness, except the book of Revelation for the first two centuries of the church. Have there been reformers or great biblical teachers who have avoided that? Or maybe avoided's not a good word, but who it's have... It's the only book of the Bible Calvin didn't write a commentary on. Yeah, I haven't preached on it. I was going to say, you've taught this, Jim, not me. No, the book of Revelation terrifies me. Well, because there's, in order to piece things together, there are so many texts of the Bible that you've got to lay out, and it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. You might get two or three pieces to fit together, but there's this other piece that doesn't, like, okay, that, that. 
And so the, the danger is, and if you're not looking at all the text and all the passages, and we're talking about the last three or four chapters of Zechariah, we're talking about the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, we're talking about whole books in the Old Testament, Psalms, the New Testament, you got to piece them together in such a way that none of the texts are having violence done to them. That is just such a monumental and massive task that I am refraining from getting dogmatic on Revelation anytime soon. Um, Zechariah was about as focused as I felt comfortable at the time getting what Zechariah taught um, when, when we went through Zechariah. I'm skeptical of anybody who's dogmatic on the book of Revelation. I, and I'm just thinking maybe in the future those things will fit together by God's grace a little bit Jim better. Jim is dogmatic on his skepticism of people who are dogmatic that is correct. on Revelation. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Just wanted to see that. Okay. Oh, Corey. Yeah, but to my understanding, the book of Revelation uh, is the only one that has the blessing. Which Is that what you were looking yeah. for? In is verse there a blessing on understanding? I read who reads it aloud and who hears it. Does it say understands? It says, read those who hear the words and heed the things ah. which are written in it. Which, so which it is important. understanding. You can't keep or heed something. that you. If I speak to you in Swahili, you can't keep it and obey it, Right? Okay. Oh, Jim. Jim differ, disagrees. Okay. No. I, I. Yeah. It's the only but book. I, the I think it's important to try to okay. understand it. Try to read. Try to, yeah. you know, maybe dig in further. But yeah. Obviously, no. we can't be like you say. Can't be dogmatic on the the real specific details. But we need to try to grasp. Oh yeah. And do what we can to understand what the word is trying to tell us. Uh, no, absolutely. And Revelation, I think, is important oh. as any of the other books. And I we mean, don't no, if uh, not the most. Well, what we want to avoid is a canon within the canon, where we end up with all scriptures inspired and profitable, but some books are better than others. Yeah, and they're right. all good. They all should be read and reread and studied. And yeah, just because Revelation's difficult, and just because people have said some crazy things. Doesn't, shouldn't stop us from reading it and trying to understand it and ask for understanding. And it is the only book of the Bible I'm aware of that is a blessing on reading, hearing, and keeping. So that's something. Oh, Steve Sparks. Hi. Uh, realize that this question comes from a misguided but repentant individual. <laughs> um, I used to think that it was good to relieve pain and suffering. Now I'm recognizing that God's will is right in front of us, and it includes pain and suffering. Yeah. So My question is, okay. how do I learn to pray to give God the glory and support his will and get myself out of the picture? Well, it's, it's a difficult balance. Paul tells Timothy to take some wine for his stomach. So we're not sadists. Who's the one who wants to suffer? The masochist? We're not masochists. It's not suffering is good. We'll hit my thumb with a hammer, you know. And doctors such as yourself do good in preserving life. Paul refers to Lucas as the beloved physician. And so preserving life, even the story of the Good Samaritan and preserving that man's life is good. Um, so we're not looking for intentional suffering, what we're recognizing, as Peter said, is in God's plans and purposes will very likely and certainly at times involve trials and suffering. And that 
when you recognize it's, and, and go, go to First Peter. It's not just any old suffering that we are to um, embrace. It's suffering for the sake of conscience. It's suffering for what is right. Um, you can suffer because you're a jerk. And, and Peter deals with that too. If you, uh, oh, we'll, we'll look at it when we get there. First Peter chapter 2. Um, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So it's not just enduring. So Paul appeals to Caesar. He gets mistreated by the Roman government. He's a Roman citizen, and Paul has no problem saying, hey, <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen here. He didn't just say, okay, this is great. I'm, I'm suffering for the sake of righteousness. But when it becomes clear, I was going to, I left this out of the sermon this morning. What's interesting in, in Acts is just as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul repeats the pattern in the book of Acts, does he not? So in Acts 20, verses 22 to 23, Paul says, as he gathers the Ephesian elders together, he says, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. And like his master before him, Paul's, that Agabus tries to talk him out of it, right? And others try to talk him out of it. And Paul has set his face to go to Jerusalem and suffer. So when it becomes clear that um, it's for the sake of conscience and for the Lord, that's when you need to settle and come to peace with it and say, okay, okay, that will be done. And we can, like Jesus, Pray, take this cup for me. So Jesus says, if there's any other way, take this cup for me. So I think, the, I think there's a natural human desire to avoid pain, which isn't wrong. If you, if you burn your hand on the stove, don't leave it there. You can pull, pull it back. And yet, when it becomes clear that um, God is calling me to this, and I think that will be clear, um, whether it's children who have, um, you know, parent. I mean, all parents are sinful, so all children are going to suffer unjustly under parents to some degree. Um, whether it's a husband, whether it's a wife, whether it's under a government, um, whether it's in any place, in the workplace, um, when, when it becomes clear, okay, um, I, I think I see. Now you're talking about suffering for the sake of conscience, the type that, that, that is being talked about here. So you can certainly pray against sickness. You can certainly try to help people, we do, pr pray that they get better. And yet recognize it, it might be God's will that Ron suffer. And endure this. And if that is God's will, God will work good through it. And yet we pray, Lord, take this cup from him. Nevertheless, not our will but his be done. I think that's the posture. We, so God gives us, and we're ignorant, and we're uninformed, and we're stupid, and we don't know what God's up to. But he wants to know what we think and what we want. And so we come and we say, well, this seems good to us. It seems good to us for Ron to get better. We all agree on that. Lord, would you do that? And God's plan will be perfect. And we'll see what that is. <laughs> And yet, he still asks us to come with our petitions. So we do. And we don't know his whole big picture story. So we just see what we see, and we say, it looks good to us. And sometimes the Lord says, yeah, that seems good. And he does it, and other times he has something better planned. But that's, I think, the posture we take. Renee wants to, look, microphone. No. <laughs> no. I just want to, I know I see the one, the verse there in that same passage, where this is a gracious thing. And mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. unjustly. But the rest of that passage really um, speaks of spiritual um, 
like standing up for what is right and speaking out. And so I have a hard time applying, other than that one portion of that passage, I have a hard time applying physical suffering in there as okay. a portion. So can you oh, yeah, go yeah. further on that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go back and let's look at this whole text in its context. Um, verse 13 is the head verb and the head verse in this section. It goes all the way through 3 7. In fact, the only finite occurrence, you just happen to have picked the text I did a purport on the seminary. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this one. So do you, do you guys know the difference between a verb and a participle? A participle in English is ing on the end usually. And participles are directed by their head verbs. So if I say running, I can put it in the past tense by saying um, yesterday I was running. Running doesn't change. I can say tomorrow I will be running. So when you look at a participle, you want to know when it's taking place, how it's taking place. The verb was, will be, governs it. Same thing happens in Greek. The only finite verb of hupotasso, submit, order yourself under, is in verse 13. It's occurrence in 18 and it's occurrence in 3.1, continuing the thought of fearful or respectful submission. Now right, wives, continues through. So the, the head command is in 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then Peter's going to go through some of those institutions. Slaves, wives, marriage, and, and such. So that's and the, the com combination is submit and respect. Literally, the Greeks, phobe, fear. Um, but the fear is the notion of reverence or honor. Um, and so to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme, uh, certainly unto the emperor, you're talking about people getting crucified, right? Um, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. There's the pair, submit fear. We're doing it all in the fear of the Lord, honor the emperor. So I, the overarching category is every human institution. And then we're going to go through a couple cases. First, servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows with suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it? Certainly, that's a real beating, I think. Would you, I mean, yes, no, you with me there? It le just in 20. I'm not saying it's everything else. Okay. Um, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he broadens it out from slaves, leave slaves now to every Christian. For to this you've been called, Christ also suffered for you. Now, Christ's sufferings weren't just spiritual, they were physical as well. Um, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep and have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the same way or likewise, this isn't a new thought. He's continuing the discussion. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Well, in the same way as what? Your antecedent options are Jesus submitting to the crucifixion or the slaves. Those are your antecedent options. Um, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful, there's that other pairing word, and pure conduct. So not, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry. So no, it, it's for the sake of conscience. So there's a sense in which you are absolutely suffering because you're being a Christian because you're doing what is right. But uh, I, 
I view the overarching categories, every human institution, the types of things that take place in the world, and the types of sufferings that come from them. Um, but it, it, I think it could cover all manner of things. My brother-in-law was persecuted at his job. He was a plumber, and he knew the code. And when he was on jobs working for a union, um, he would do it according to code and take a lot slower. So he'd pay both sides of the pipe, not only the side you could see, because that was code. And he felt conscience bound to do it right. And they'd give him grief and they'd, they'd just, I mean, the persecution was just, oh, come on, man, hurry up and you're slowing us down. But he did what was right and he suffered for the sake of conscience. I think that would just as much apply to him as somebody in jail in a Chinese prison sub submitting to the authorities there. Just as much as children trying to honor a, a, a mother or a father who are, you know, foul-tempered. Or, I mean, I, I, think, I think this goes across in every type of scenario. I wouldn't want to limit it to one particular thing. I, I can think of a thousand applications, whether it's, you know, dealing with a police officer who's a jerk and, you know, and at the same time, appeal to Caesar, you know, you've got those rights as well. But um, I, I view this as a general broad thing, especially when he broadens it out to anyone. This is gracious when anyone, now I think it's broadening out much more fully, but that's my answer. Okay. Microphone, sorry, Mike. Oh. Actual physical maladies that we go through, um, that sort of thing. Like, does it cover, is that covered? No, sickness wouldn't be under this rubric because unless, and, well, no, I can think of cases. You catch a disease ministering to sick people. Yeah, yeah. but this is, the, the governing principles here are, um, verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, um, then it's verse 19. This is a gracious thing and mindful of God. One endures sorrows with suffering unjustly. There's no injustice with sickness. Um, but no, so, so yeah, if, if, if your house gets hit by lightning and burns down, you're not really suffering. And other passages would speak to that. But when you're, the real picture is this. There's trial, suffering entering my life. My natural inclination is to move away from it, but I'm seeing the Bible encourage me to endure and abide in it. And I'm, for the sake of conscience, that's what I'm going to do. That's when First Peter applies, is, would be what I'd say. Okay. Oh. <clears throat> Why not? But it's, at least it's not angels. Okay. Indeed. Amen. Well, Corey and I had talked about this in the past, and I misunderstood him. I thought that there, that we wouldn't even know each other, but he, but then I asked him just last night, I said, okay, how can that be if when my mother was dying, she said to me, I, just let me go, I see my mom and dad and my baby brothers who had passed at birth, they're sitting under a tree and they're welcoming me. And I, and he says, well, because I didn't tell you that. He said, I told you that, well, no relationships it, they just won't be the same. Right. No, Jesus speaks of, in the resurrection in Luke 11, 12, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be at this feast. I mean, somehow Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah. I'm not entirely sure how that worked, but they knew it was them. And they're still Moses and Elijah. Um, and Samuel came back and talked to Saul. Now, we retain our identity. I'll still be Jeremy. Um, and I will know or have some knowledge of, of my, well, I'll know my past, and I'll know who my parents were and all of that. But those relationships will be 
in some sense, changed and upgraded. They'll be better, and they'll not be the same. In the same way that we eat and drink in the new heavens and the new earth, but we don't eat and drink to stay alive. I mean, we eat now because if you go long enough without food, you begin to get weary and tired, and if you go long enough, you die. That will not be why we're eating in heaven, um, to sustain our life. So it's, it's not entirely clear what those relationships will be, but yeah, we'll, we'll know who each other are. Um, absolutely we will. Because the whole point of Jesus' statement in Luke is, yeah, you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at that table, and you're not going to be there. <laughs> and you're going to want to be there. Or even the, the, the rich man cried out, Father Abraham. Well, how do you know it was Abraham he was talking to? Somehow, I don't know, but he did. I don't know if he had a name tag on or something, but um, he, was able to he was able to look up and see and identify Abraham out of everyone else and call out to Abraham. I don't know. So. Hey, what about animals? Because I guess there's a book a friend of mine has that it's named Heaven, and she says that there are Ecclesiastes. animals. Ecclesiastes. Let's go to Ecclesiastes. No, I, got, I think I got an answer for this one. Hold on. Um, I'm going to need help finding where in Ecclesiastes it is, though. I think I, I'm hoping I have it underlined. Um, hold on. Mitchell's looking for me. Okay. Ecclesiastes. I'm just hoping I have it underlined. Hold on. Um, who knows whether the spirit of... Yeah, it's... it's it can tr Three? Ooh. Yes, three. Thank you, Lee. Boom. Okay. Um, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, nefesh, spirit um, in them. Man has no advantage over beasts, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All are from dust. Now, there the place is just dead, death, not heaven or hell. 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So beasts have breath or spirit or life. The, the, the Hebrew is sort of interchangeable. And um, I don't know what will happen to the breath of animals, except God's going to do what he wants to do with them. Um, I, I have no idea. I have no knowledge. Um, from what we can tell, animals are not moral creatures. Um, and there's life, uh, other than human life, in the new heavens and the new earth. There's plants. So I don't know what animals will be there. Um, I would expect... There will be, if it's the new or the renewed heavens and earth, I'd expect there to be animal and fauna life in the new heavens and the new earth, but I, I couldn't be dogmatic on that. Um, but yeah, that, that's what distinguishes um, animals from like beetles. And the animals are said to have breath or spirit or life in them. And plants, because people talk about, you say there's no death for the fall, and plants were dying. Well, no, they weren't. Pieces of plants were dying, fruit was dying, but trees are never said to have life in them. I mean, just because our modern scientific classification puts them all under life. Biblical categories, animals and humans and the larger creatures have this life principle in them. And so there was no death of that prior to the fall. Anyway, sorry, that's a tangent on a tangent on a tangent. Well, I was thinking 
Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, that's, not, that's not a nice way to refer to your husband, but... Um, No, I don't think it's a definitive answer. But, even, but the God who made them will be. I mean, everything that was enjoyable, pleasant, lovable in your pet is from the author of every good gift, God. So that hasn't gone away. That goodness, that delightfulness, that... Um, what? Furry. Furry. Still exists, either in God's mind or God's decided to. You know, I don't know what He's going to do with it. I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's no reason they couldn't be. They're not fallen. They're not wicked. They don't deserve judgment. No, there's no reason they couldn't be. I don't know. Um, I wouldn't go write a book on it, but I don't know. Um, be a short book. Do animals go to heaven? I don't know. The end. Okay. Um, but no, but is, you, you know what Mark has? Mark's fascinating. Mark's great commission has not just proclaimed the gospel to all people, but to every creature. <laughs> it's what it says. I'm not going there. I'm just saying. Um, no, as, a, as an unregenerate child, I remember preaching the gospel to my dog, Max. That's an unbeliever. Okay. Uh, all right. Is that one of those books based off of someone dying and coming back, that type of thing? Or is this Randy Alcorn's book? Is it Because Randy Alcorn's is decent. That book, there's so many books with heaven, and I don't know, heaven's for real. If it's, if it's heaven by Randy Alcorn, that's, that's, that's pretty solid. Um, but, yeah. Okay. Is that the one, is that Alcorn? Okay. No, no, Alcorn's solid. Alcorn's solid. Um, okay. We've got five minutes. Somebody, somebody take us home here. Come on. I, actually, I have an aside I want to make. I want to go to Colossians. Um, I'm going to recommend a sermon. I'm going to put it up online on my Facebook account later today. Um, probably one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard in my life. I mean, I remember being rocked. It was John Piper back in the 90s, and it was called Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. I don't know if anyone here has heard that, but it's a powerful message. And he, he's going to make a point about Colossians 2. Okay? No, is it Colossians? It's Colossians 1. Um, yeah, verse 24. Okay? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? It is a very bold statement, and yet Paul makes it. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, if you mean by Christ's afflictions, Christ's atoning death on the cross, nothing, nothing whatsoever. But Christ's afflictions go beyond that, right? He, he suffered all of his life. And Piper um, makes the connection between this and Philippians chapter 3. The only other occurrence, soaking up what is lacking in, occurs. 
and in Philippians 3. Um, I think it's Philippians 3. Maybe it's 2. Hold on. Yeah, no, it's 2. It's 2. Um, he talks about Epaphroditus. Um, verse 25, chapter 2. This is the only other place in the New Testament that phrase occurs. Filling up, soaking up what is lacking. Philippians 2. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and your fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my needs. So the church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus with money for Paul to minister to him in jail, and he is supposed to take care of Paul on their behalf. And Paul's sending him back. And part of what Paul's doing is making it clear, I'm not sending him back because he didn't do a good job. I'm sending him back because he got sick, and he almost died, and he heard that you were longing for him, and so I thought it would be good to send him back to you guys just because you guys miss each other and... He's making it clear, I'm not sending him back for poor service. Um, verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, because you heard he was ill. I mean, get the logic of that. Epaphroditus isn't distressed that he's ill. He's distressed that the people he loves heard that he's ill and he knows they're going to be worried. Okay? Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. By the way, when we pray about sickness, that's oftentimes a lot of how I pray. Lord, be merciful to us. Give many more years of Ron to us or others who are sick. You know, you can pray that way. Um, so God was merciful to Paul by healing Epaphroditus, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died in the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, there's the same phrase. Here's the picture. What was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul? They needed a messenger to convey their money and their concern to Paul. So the Philippians send love in the form of money, but there needs to be a messenger, a conduit, a person to deliver the love of the Philippians to Paul. And so what completes their love of Paul is this person showing up on their behalf, serving Paul. Okay? Plug that back in. Jesus has made available the gospel. But Jesus is not physically on earth presenting the gospel to the world. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is our suffering to spread the message of the gospel as we are his arms and legs and his body. That's the logic of Colossians. So the, the atonement is paid for fully, complete, but that's not the fullness of redemption. The fullness of redemption isn't until all of God's sheep come into the fold, right? So there's still saving work to be done, not saving as in sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, but evangelism and missions, and that's all part of salvation going out. And Christ has deemed his church and his body to do it and not he himself. And in that ministry of reconciliation, suffering is the means by which the gospel advances. And you read church history, it's absolutely the case. It is not the case that somebody becomes a rich millionaire and is a Christian, and people say, oh, how can I? Now, that's the problem with the health wealth movement. And the reason why there's so many people in Africa and other countries flocking to Christianity is they want to be rich too. It's the exact opposite. Piper tells the story that Wormbrandt told. Richard Wormbrandt, he was a... Voice of the Martyrs, yeah. He tells a story, and I'll close with this, of a, uh, a poor, um, uneducated missionary in India who just go from town to town barefoot, 
um, sharing the news of the gospel. And, and this is all, and Piper does a way better job of this. Doing missions when dying is gain. It's worth your time. It it's absolutely blew me away. Um, one of the top five most powerful messages I've ever heard in my life. And on Facebook, it'll be up later this afternoon. So this, this evangelist is going around from town to town in India. Um, he's a poor man, wearing rags. And he shows up to a town just at sunset. And he goes in, and he, and he finds the center of town, and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And the people ridicule him, and they mock him, and they drive him out of town. And he goes out, and he lies down under a tree, very discouraged, and goes to sleep. He wakes up a little while later, and he sees most of the town is gathered around him. This is apparently a true story, by the way. Wormbrandt told it as a true story. And he's not sure if they're about to lynch him or what. And one of the elders of the village comes up to him and says, we, we wanted to see what type of man we were. And so we came out to find you. And when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you were a holy man. And we want to know what you have to say. We want to hear it again. According to Wormbrandt, that town came to Christ. That's an illustration of through suffering. Whatever message you've got must be important because you're willing to suffer and go to great lengths and pains to communicate it, right? And so when this is, I mean, that's when the world takes up and, and, and pays attention, right? When, when a Christian suffers differently than the world. The world loses its money, they're undone, they're lost. And you act as though, oh yeah, this is, this is terrible, but we're okay. God is good. That's when people are going to want to know, who is it? what is this hope that you have? I mean, isn't the whole impetus in Peter of evangelism, always be ready to give a, a reason for the hope that is within you. Well, people aren't going to ask about that hope until they see this person should be broken, this person should be undone, and they're not. What's, what's keeping them glued together? I need to know what that hope is. That's generally the means. And so um, through, the gospel appears to advance through suffering, not through prosperity. Um, that if you yeah, and like I said, pick up voice, um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, pick up any book on church history, you'll see that's the case. Um, and that's, I think, what Paul's making the point in, in Colossians there, soaking up the afflictions of Christ. To bring good news, indeed. And on that note, we'll break. Meet you all next week. God bless. Have a good afternoon.